Let's get into the Word of God together. If you have a Bible with me, um, if you have a Bible with me, if you have a Bible with you, go to Acts chapter 1. That's where we're going to be going. Um, I've told you before, you guys know this about me, that I am something of a sort of DIY whiz. Um, you know, if God gifts you with something, it's just right to, to work on it. And, and uh, I'm a savant in that area, I really am. I, I, a few weeks ago, I decided I needed to fix our toilet. Um, important to stress, the toilet was not broken prior to getting fixed, okay? It was not. Um, I say prior to getting fixed. You'll find out more about that in a moment. Uh, it was slow, though. We had the cistern took a good 20 minutes to refill. We had an incident where one of our children decided they needed to use the toilet just after it had been flushed, and we had guests coming over, and it wasn't the number one. So it was like, okay, I need to, I need to get this resolved. This is getting frustrating. And uh, so, so, you know, I did, did what you do. You go on YouTube. And, you know, found someone tried to fix a similar issue with the same toilet. And all the comments were like, this is fantastic. Five-minute job, no problem. That's how they get you, okay? Honestly, so it should have been flagged for misinformation. So I do the whole thing. I go down, I turn off the mains, which was a pain in the neck because we have a corner cupboard. So I like, I, I'm too big to get in like that way. So I had to sort of go on my side and reach in like this. Very painful, scraping my arms. But I was like, it's fine, it's fine. I only have to do this one time. And so I go upstairs, fix the toilet. And not only has my fixing not worked, but now it's starting to overflow. It's not stopping. So I sprint back downstairs, turn the thing off again, get even more scraped up, sprint back up, try another fix, back down, turn on the mains again, water spraying everywhere, okay, all over the bathroom and all over me. And thus started a four-hour battle with a demon-possessed lavatory, okay? It was, it did not go well. Uh, I end up soaked in toilet water. The room is soaked in toilet water. I have no skin left on my forearms from turning off the stopcock over and over again. Danny helpfully comes in to offer advice, which is just what I wanted, okay? Just what I wanted. Yes, please do. And it got worse. It got worse from there, everyone. Jack decided he needed to wash his hands. And so I noticed that the water is now chugging out of the tap. So I'm like, not only have we broken the toilet, but now there's an airlock. So now I have to Google how to fix it. I know nothing about plumbing. I've never plumbed anything in my life. So, right, so what do you do? Apparently, you open up all the taps. You turn the mains off, open all the taps, turn it on, it flushes it. So I, I uh, do that, I, I, I turn the mains off, all the taps open, turn the mains back on. Suddenly there's no water coming out of the shower, okay? So not only do we not have a functioning toilet, now we don't have a shower. I repent to the family for shouting at them, okay? And in the end, we just decided to move house. Okay, that was the only way to fix it. Um, we didn't. Uh, to be honest, can I tell you what it was? The tiniest little thing ever. Firstly, the shower thing was just because it was at the end of the line, so there was no water getting there. So thankfully, that resolved itself. Um, but the, what had actually caused the slowness was there was a tiny, tiny bit of rubber from a seal that had got lodged in a nozzle. And I would not have picked that up in a million years. I had no idea that that's what the issue was. It wasn't the issue I was looking to fix. And when I took that out, it worked perfectly. Okay, so I am, as I said, DIY whiz, okay? Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, Griff. Yeah, I appreciate that. What a slow golf clap right there. <laughs> anyway, here's the thing, right? I'm willing to bet that if I had understood the original design of the toilet, I probably would have 
fixed it pretty quickly. If I had understood how this thing was meant to function, if I had understood that the water was meant to be coming out of that nozzle quicker, that that was the issue, not whatever else I thought it was, it would have been a very easy fix. If you don't understand the original design of something, it's hard to fix it. It's hard to figure out how it's, it's hard, hard to figure out why it is not working and how to get it working again. And I want to talk today about the original design of the church. Um, this is going to be a slightly sort of unusual style of sermon because it's almost going to be like a little bit of a church history lesson, okay? Now, don't fall asleep, okay, because it's good church history. This is interesting church history. But it's a wee bit different than what I would normally do. Uh, and here's why I want to do that. Because I think if we look at the church in the Western world, we look at the church around us broadly, um, over, over the last couple of generations, I think we could say that it feels like things are not quite working the way they should. Things, things are not really um, flowing in the way that we would imagine. It feels like there's something that's blocking what we're meant to be doing. We, we seem to have lost our impact. We seem to have lost some of our power, some of our fruit. And, and that's not true. I'm not talking about every congregation. And, uh, you know, there's, there's bright spots within that, okay? But at the same time, if we look broadly, we can go, look, there's, there's something here that isn't working as it should be. Do we recognize that? Yeah? Like you kind of understand that there's, there's something that isn't quite working. And sometimes our tendency can be, oh, well, what we need is a new thing. Like, like we, need, we need something new here. We, we, need, we need a new strategy, a new, a new plan, a new program to fix this. But in fact, as in the verse that I read earlier of Isaiah 61, the following verse goes on and talks about that they will be rebuilders of ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. There's this idea in the Bible that now that Jesus has come and the Spirit has been poured out, that we actually don't need a quote-unquote new thing. We need the old thing restored. We need a fresh wave of the old thing. So there's a newness to it, but at the same time, it's not like we're reinventing the wheel here. We're not reinventing Christianity for our day. We're not, we're not bringing it into the 21st century in that way. Obviously, there's ways in which we do that. We have worship and we've got, you know, guitars and pianos and we have lights and all of that. But, but we're not looking for some brand new thing. We're looking for a fresh wave of the old thing. We want the same spirit as they had then. We want the same power as they had then. We want the same word as they had then. We want the old thing. And so I want to get into some history. I'm going to get real specific. We're going to look, obviously, at the book of Acts, because that is the, the prototype, that, or say prototype, that is the, the original design of the church. But I also want to look into the history of, of the Irish church. That's going to be where all my stories come from today, okay? So we're going to land that in the Irish church. I'm not sure if you're aware, but this island was at one point historically the epicenter of Christianity in the globe. Like this place, there was an, a remarkable thing that God did here. There was a, a power at work here. There was something phenomenal that happened here. I, I've talked about this before. It's like there's something in the soil here where it has been soaked in centuries of prayer and centuries of the power of God and centuries of missions and miracles. And I want to talk about our original design both from a biblical perspective, but also from an Irish Christianity perspective to remind us of our identity, 
to remind us who we are as the church in this place. You are, like it or not, the Irish church. So it was, and we're talking about this island, okay? That is who you are. And to be honest, it doesn't matter even if you're not from Ireland. If you're here now, you're welcome to the Irish church. I was chatting to a couple from Zambia the other week. They're here. You're in the Irish church, guys. You are, okay? That's the reality. You are in the Irish church. And we need to know our original design, who God has called us to be as Irish saints, Irish Christians. So are we up for that this morning? Yes, we are. Fantastic. Three of us are anyway, and the rest, you're, you're going to listen whilst we get stuck in. All right, so Acts chapter 1 then. We'll read verse uh, 4 and 5, and then 8, and then 14. Slightly weird, but just, just getting to the key points of this for the sake of time. It says, and while staying with them, this is Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then jumping down in verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he tells them, don't go anywhere uh, and you wait for the Holy Spirit and you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. Now, what did the church understand this instruction to mean in practice? Well, verse 14 tells us, and actually we see this uh, continued on into chapter 2. It says this, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were joining in prayer. They were in constant prayer. Prayer is one of the great overarching emphases of the church in the book of Acts. Um, There are more references to prayer in Acts than any other book in the Bible. Bar none. And it's not a particularly long book, sort of medium-sized book, biblically speaking. And yet it talks about prayer more than any other. We're told that the early church, as it says here, they devoted themselves to prayer here. We're told the same thing in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, uh, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. Um, they, they were, were told that the apostles devoted themselves to prayer in Acts 5. We keep seeing them gathering for prayer and that preceding these wonderful things. It precedes an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It precedes uh, people being sent and released into missions. It, it, it seems to be the driving force of the church. The church recognized right from this moment that one of the key things that Jesus was calling them to do if they were going to be successful in this mission was they were going to be a people of prayer. Now, here's a question for us, right? Because we know they prayed a lot. If I tell you the early church prayed a lot, you go, yes, I understand that. I agree with that. Here's a a question. Why? Like, what drives people to pray like this? Because I don't think it comes out of nowhere. I think there is a cause to this. Here's, Here's the context. Here's where they were. They were in Jerusalem. And, and, What had happened just a few weeks prior to this instruction from Jesus and a few weeks prior to this outpouring of the Holy Spirit was that that city had rejected Jesus entirely. There had been this public rejection of Jesus and this quote-unquote Messiah had been publicly executed as the lowest form of criminal. And their whole movement had collapsed. Most people were also not aware that he had risen from the dead. 
And so they're in this place where their particular movement has completely fallen apart. And furthermore, if we look at who these guys were, well, they were Jews in Jerusalem, so they're under the thumb of the empire. They have no money. They've got no clout. These guys are fishermen. They have absolutely you know, no connections of any sort, no army. And Jesus' last words to them, and we can take it from this, or we can take it from Matthew 28. I'm not sure exactly which came last, but he basically goes to them, right, job done. You guys go take over the world. And the state they're in is a place where it's like everything has fallen apart. And Jesus has said to them, you are going to go and take over the world. Now, if that was, if that was us, well, we'd pray like that too. We would. Like that would drive us to prayer. They understood something here. They understood our conditions are not great. Our commission is great, and therefore we need a great God. Like, we are not in a good place. They recognize this desperate need of God. They, they recognized that they had to get God, or this thing was not going to work at all. There was no strategy. There was no business plan, no benefactor that was going to sort this out for them. They needed the power of God himself. That's what they needed. And I think a lot of the time we don't pray like this because we don't think that. A lot of the time we don't pray like that because we kind of look around and, well, our conditions are all right. You know, we're, we're okay. We're, you know, we're not, you might not say it's the best ever, but like, you know, the church is doing okay. We've got, you know, we can get a congregation to show up. We can pay the bills, keep the lights on. And at the same time, sometimes we, we've shrunk our commission so much. It's like, yeah, well, it's just my little life, my little ministry, my little, you know, if I can keep my head above water, I'll be fine. And that's the aim. And if we are like that, then that is why we do not pray the way they prayed. And that is why we do not see the things they see. One of the big reasons. If we fast forward then 400 years, pull it back to, to here in Ireland. So we have uh, Patrick, many of you will know the basics of the story, kidnapped somewhere in Britain and brought here to probably Antrim and was a slave of a likely Druid master. And when he came here, Patrick would have, and I think he sort of describes this himself, but it's broadly accepted as well, that he was kind of a nominal Christian when he came here. He wasn't some devout Christian. He was a teenager and, you know, was, was just sort of had some Christian background, but wasn't a sincere, devout believer. And yet he finds himself in this desperate situation, this desperate place where he's alone, he's in the fields, he's a slave, he's in this really dark country. And what does he do? Well, he begins to pray and fast and seek God. He writes about this in his confession. He says this. He said, I would say as many as a hundred prayers and after dark, nearly as many again. Even while I remained in the woods or on the mountain, I would wake and pray before daybreak through snow, frost and rain. So, so he had this thing of a hundred prayers, probably the Lord's Prayer, maybe some other prayers as well that he had learned. And that was what he knew to do. And so he just goes, right, I, I have no idea what else to do. So all I'm going to do is pray. Like I'm going to do my shepherding. And as I'm doing it, I'm going to pray constantly. And he does that for six years. For six years, this is how this guy prays. And after six years, an angel shows up. And the angel says to him, it is good that you've been fasting and praying. Your ship is ready. And he has this vision and he escapes and he walks. We don't quite grasp the reality of this but he's in this foreign country he's never left this small area of it he's a runaway slave no map can't really ask anyone for 
for directions, but he just is led by the Holy Spirit down to County Wexford, gets and, and sees the ship that he's had in a vision. And, and he asks the captain if he can come on, and the captain says, and this is kind of gross, but the captain goes, you can come on if you suck my chest as a sign of loyalty, we, we think anyway. Now, I hope this was a local custom. Okay, I hope this wasn't out of nowhere. But anyway, that's the reality. Patrick goes, no thank you. And go, what does he do? He goes away and prays. And what do they do? They send someone after him and they go, actually, we've changed our mind. Get on the ship with us. He was just this person of prayer. His life was marked with this kind of prayer. That was who he was. And from that moment and, 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 and sort of drawing on from that, This kind of prayer was the hallmark of Christianity on this island. That kind of prayer was at the very center of everything that happened. Later on in life, Patrick was walking around near where Bangor is now. It didn't exist at the time. It was just the woods. And he had this vision of a choir of angels and prophesied that there would be someone who would come in, in the time after and would plant what went on to become Bangor Abbey. Doesn't we're not told if he also prophesied Picky Park, but I like to think that he did. Okay, he had a vision of a man peddling a swan and put it out there. But but again, six so sixty years after Patrick, this guy is born. This guy is called Comgall. And the day before he's born, another bishop prophesies over him, says this guy's going to do incredible miracles and thousands are going to follow him. And this guy starts Bangor Abbey, and at its height, it had four thousand monks which is quite a big congregation, like a mega church, right? 4,000, and that's not just 4,000 people attending. That's 4,000 in ministry in this place. And they, they had this process of they had three shifts throughout the day, 24 hours, where they would be in constant prayer and worship 24-7 in this place. And this prayer meeting went on for two to 300 years, right? We, can't, we can barely get through an hour. They went on for two to three hundred years. And bear in mind, a hundred years, not even a hundred years prior to this, this island was completely pagan. Like human sacrifice, dark druid religion, you know, completely like the Romans didn't want to invade. That's how bad we were. And at this point, and then, you know, just literally a hundred years later, you're seeing places like this rise up. You're seeing the the people of God who are desperate for God and are engaging in desperate prayer. And again, if we understand what was going on in the wider world at this time, this was as the Roman Empire was collapsing. The Roman Empire falls apart and you have tribes invading and you've got civilization being destroyed. England and Scotland have gone like completely feral. No change there. Um, you, have, you have Islam rising up. Uh, you know, so all these centers of Christianity are being wiped out. North Africa used to be really Christian, became really Islamic. Why, why did they pray like this? Well, I think they knew they needed it. I think they knew that there was, there was a desperate need of God in their are, both for this island, but also for the wider world. And these guys were strict, probably too strict, okay, really like ascetic, really serious. But my days, did they grasp something of the power of God in prayer? Like my days, did they, did they go, do you know what, we absolutely need this. And it was in places like Bangor Abbey and places around this island where Christianity was preserved where we went from a completely dark and pagan nation to the land of saints and scholars in under a century. There's a book called 
how the Irish saved civilization. That's what went on here, and it was driven through this kind of prayer. And can I suggest to us, look, we're, we're here, we're you know, 1,500 years later, but this is part of our spiritual heritage. This is part of our DNA. You know, we talk about the collapse of an empire. In many ways, what's happening in the West at the moment feels the same. If you look at what happened at the end of the Roman Empire and its decline, you look at what is happening here. A lot of similar stuff. Tax burdens, really high. We've got that. Endless wars, we've got that. You know, porous borders, corruption, sexual immorality, decadence. I mean, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are talking about having an MMA fight in the Colosseum, okay? We're a stupid society, everybody. We really are, okay? We're really dumb. And I think that, that in many ways we've forgotten our need of God and we thought that if we, can, if we could just have our own strategies and plans and programs, we'll get this right. And we've forgotten this idea that, do you know what? If God does not breathe on this thing, we are doomed to fail. We have forgotten that. And perhaps there's something, perhaps there's a heritage on the people of this island where we are called to be the people who in times like that are the ones who get on our face before God. Perhaps we are a people who are called to cry out to him, to pursue his presence, to pursue his power, to go after him in times like that. And when the West seems to be collapsing, maybe once again, we could be the place where we say we're not letting go of God that easily. Maybe we could be the place where we say, we believe we can turn this thing around. Maybe we believe, maybe, maybe we're the, the place that believes that actually something could happen here that could take back the Western world for God. Maybe that's our heritage. Maybe that's what God is calling us to do. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing then. Uh, so, so Jesus' ministry was done pretty much exclusively in the confines of Israel. So if you look at where, where, where he did his ministry physically, it was pretty much just in Israel, a tiny bit across the borders, um, but just across the borders. He never really went far. And he said himself, my, my ministry is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And, but at the end of his ministry, he goes, well, that's changing. We're shifting that up. Now you're making disciples of all nations. Go to the, the ends of the earth. What do we read in Acts 1? It says, that, says exactly that. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there's this shift here. There's a commission here to go. And what's amazing is in the first seven chapters of Acts, they don't actually do it. They, they, they have a wonderful outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but they don't leave Jerusalem. They, they stay in one spot. And so God kind of goes... They haven't really understood this yet. Let's give them a slap in the bake, you know, get them out of here. And, and so he allows some persecution. Uh, the, the, it forces them to scatter. You've got uh, an angel shows up to Philip and says, right, you need to go here and preach the gospel to this Ethiopian guy. So we're getting these hints of this happening. We see God then physically transport him to Gaza, which was not a, not a Jewish area. And then we see uh, Peter has this vision uh, later on of of all the forbidden foods. You're not allowed to eat all the pork chops and pigs in blankets. And he says, no, Lord, I could never eat that. And God goes, look, I know better than you. You need to have some pigs and blankets. And by the way, this is about the gospel going to the Gentiles. 
and, and then Gentiles show up and he preaches the gospel to them. They get saved and then Saul gets saved and God makes him a missionary to the Gentiles. Uh, and we see all of this, this, uh, this, them being sent you know, as missionaries and he has this dream of a man from Macedonia uh, and the Lord then says, I'm going to send you to Rome. So there's this big deal throughout Acts of what we're seeing is that God wants his people to go. Like God wants his people to get up and get out there with the gospel. He wants them to reach people with the gospel. And he seems to be much more keen than they are. He's more excited. He's not waiting for them to volunteer. Saul did not volunteer for the commission. God landed on him and goes, by the way, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Deal with it. He is so keen for them to get, to get going. He just kicks them out. And so that's the second thing about the early church and the church in Acts is it's not just a praying church, it's also a going church. It's a church that's on the move. And over time, what happens is they recognize that, maybe they don't fully recognize at the start, but we see it over the course of the book. They recognize not just their own need of God, but the world's need of God. That the people around them, the, the nations around them, are in need of God. They, they allow themselves to be moved by the lost's need of salvation. And the purpose of all their praying, the purpose of all their worship, it seems to drive them towards this. Like it wasn't just to have sort of cozy times with Papa, right? Like it wasn't just nice, cozy, you know, you know uh, goosebumpy prayer times. It was that they would actually get up and do something about it. They would be filled up and sent out. And once again, this is something that has marked our land. If we look at Patrick, you know, he escapes and he gets back to Britain and he realizes after being in Ireland that he's not satisfied in England. That's because it's got English people in it. No, it's not. It's not. That's just a wee joke, okay? God loves the English too. But he has this sense of urging, this sense of of God calling him to do something and he has this dream. And he, he writes about this dream. He says, In a night vision I beheld a man coming, as it were, from Ireland. He bore innumerable letters, and he gave one to me to read. I read one line, Vox Hiberniae, the voices of the Irish. And while I read, I thought I heard the cry of them by the wood of Falkleth somewhere, beside the western ocean, saying, Come, holy youth, come and walk among us, come, all with one voice. Imagine, imagine the context here, right? You're, you're a captured slave. Uh, you've been human trafficked uh, and you managed to escape led by God, by an angel uh, and you have this dream and vision that gets you out and then God wakes you up in the middle of the night and giving you a dream and says, you need to go back. Like you, 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 you actually need to go back that way. There is no way that you even consider doing this if it's not God right? You, you do not say yes to this, but that is what the call of God is like. That God was so desperate that someone would get to this place, that he would take the person who was a slave here and pull them back in. He said, look, you're praying and you've been here. You qualify. We're going to bring you back. You will not have an option about this. I'm going to make sure that you go. This is, this is a slight aside, but, but one, one I wanted to include. Sometimes your place of oppression can be your place of operation. You know, sometimes you think you're there and you have no idea what's going on. You have no idea what God is up to. I'm going to tell you this. God can use it. God can use that. 
He can use it mightily. You might think you're being persecuted. Maybe you're being prepared. Maybe you're being set up to do something in that area, just as Patrick was here. And so God sends Patrick into what, as I said, was one of the darkest, most pagan places in the world. It was, this was not a nice place. And the first place he goes is back to his old druid master to preach the gospel to him. And, and there is something about that. It's just a radical missionary spirit that has marked the Irish church from that time on. We were the most radical missionaries in the world. And, and some of the most radical missionaries in human history have been the early Irish missionaries. You, you, you may have heard stories, I don't know if you have, about the Irish monks. Our monks were not like, like other monks, okay? Just, sometimes people think monks, that's about hiding away in a monastery. Our monks were the opposite. They, they were functionally church planters. That's what they did. They were embedded in the life of the community. They were imbe- embedded in the clan system. They lived as missionaries. Th- th- these places, these churches, they became centers of art and commerce and business and, and education. The best scholarship in the entire world was being done from here, right? If you took someone, we're not as known for that anymore, can we say that? The Paddy Irishman jokes have a bit of a truth to them, right? But if you took someone from back in that day, from elsewhere, and you brought them here and you said, oh, where are you from? And you said, Lurgan. They go, oh, you must be a genius, you know, which we know not to be the case, right? But, but like that is what was happening here. So, no offense to anyone from Lurgan. You can move. Okay, you can. But there is this powerful missionary spirit that flowed through the Irish church. I'll tell you about a couple of them. These are some of my favorite figures in church history. So in the generation after Patrick, there's this guy called Finian of Clonard. And he starts a, a monastery that ends up having thousands of missionaries sent out from it. Thousands. Right? Just imagine that kind of Bible college. Right? But to put it in our terms. There are 12 figures um, throughout Irish church history, or, or at this point of Irish church history, that were called the Twelve Apostles of Ireland. And they reached like a ton of people. Patrick had a great start, but they're called the Twelve Apostles of Ireland. Like we really got converted through the ministry of these guys. All 12 of them were trained by Finian of Clonard. And that's a pretty powerful ministry right there. He had this whole thing of once you were trained up, he kicked you out. This was not a private little club. He was sending people. Once, he, once you were in any way decent, you were sent. One, one, one of his students and one who went on to be one of the 12 apostles of Ireland was a guy called Kieran or Kieran. I think it was actually pronounced at the time. We would call him Kieran. He, there's a story of him where he lent his gospel of Matthew to a friend. They, you know, books were expensive back in the day. So he had a gospel of Matthew and lent it to a friend. And then he was quizzed on it by, by Finian. And he had only memorized half of it. And so everyone was laughing at him because that was the standard, okay? Which I'm sure if, you know, we all know what that's like, yeah? And uh, so they, they begin laughing at him. They call him Kieran Half Matthew. And Finian goes, don't call him Kieran Half Matthew, call him Kieran Half Ireland because he's going to win half the nation and the other half is going to be left up to the rest of us. Like this guy was powerful, right? Uh, so later on in his life after this, he uh, goes to Aaron, which is a very famous a monastery you may have heard of, and this guy called Enda of Aaron, who was well known. They both have the same dream. Uh, and the dream is that there's this fruitful tree on the banks of a river in the middle of Ireland. And the fruit from that place is going to cross the sea and be carried around the world. And Enda says to him, This is your calling. This is what you're meant to do. 
Um, Ireland is going to be nourished by your fasting and prayer. Back to the first point. Go to the middle of Ireland and find your church on the banks of a stream. And so he goes to this place. Now, these days, this is out in the middle of the country. It's called Clonmacnoise. Clonmacnoise is uh, very different today than it was then. Back in that day, this was one of the central hubs of Ireland because you had the intersection of three rivers, the Blackwater, the Shannon, and the Suck. And then you had an esker, which is a, a raised ridge that was going along right through this intersection. And Ireland was very boggy and forested at the time. So these things all functioned as motorways. And so he starts a monastery, starts a church there in that place, right in the middle of Ireland, right in this central hub. And, and I love this. Someone, I heard a church historian put it this way. He was not just doing this in obedience to the vision. He was doing this as a prophetic declaration that all of Ireland would belong to Jesus. Come on, if that doesn't fire you up, guys, like that, that, gets, that gets my juices flowing. Like my days, yes, I love it. It's so good. Like, and, and this place was incredible. Thousands of monks raised up, missionaries sent out. Do you know education in all of Europe? Talk about the educational renaissance under Charlemagne. It was led by monks trained at this place. You will not necessarily know all the history, but it was powerful. He Here's what's even more incredible about this story. He died young, right? And the rest of his friends celebrated because he was winning so many people to Jesus, they were worried they wouldn't have anyone left to convert. That is class. Like it is. That's awesome. I love that story. This is our history, folks. There's so many stories like this. You've got Columba, who was was, uh, trained in Bangor. And he goes and goes to, to Scotland. He's sent to the Picts. Again, totally wild, totally pagan. And then they go down from there into England. And they start all of these famous places. They convert all these places. Lindisfarne comes out from this movement. Very famous monastery. You've got Columbanus, educated in County Fermanagh. Transformed the church on the continent. He goes and he reconverts essentially like a lot of the what we'll call the Lombards sort of in the French and Swiss area. You've got Brendan the Navigator. This guy, radical missionary, feels called by God to go somewhere, makes a leather boat and just goes across the Atlantic casually on his own, right? Goes, you read his story, he goes past Iceland, goes into Newfoundland. People even think he made it down to the Caribbean and then caught the Gulf Stream back up. Like, powerful missionaries. And I just want to say, like, this is our legacy. This is our legacy. Like, yes, it's the legacy of the people of God broadly. Yes, it's in Acts. Yes, it's in biblical. But there's something in the blood of this Ireland where we are a people who are happy to be sent somewhere. I think we have a need to do that. Why is it everywhere you go, you find an Irish pub? You know, we're everywhere. Everybody knows St. Paddy. They do. They know our, because we actually have something. I think we're a people who cannot live without commissioning. I think we're a people who have a need of that. I think we have a spiritual itch and that we need to be sent and some will be sent to here, some will be sent from here, but we need to be sent as the people of God in this island. We, we have some incredible people in our church. You know, Andrew Looney doing phenomenal mission work. I was chatting to him the other week and God just opening up stuff in Myanmar. They've got a, a Bible school there involved. 180 students, is that right? 180 students in a Bible college. Now that's a big Bible. Find me many Bible colleges that size. 
That's, a, that's remarkable. We've got Colin, Colin Primrose, I don't know if it's him, but straight after he gets saved, gets a dream from God that he's going to go and help plant churches in India. And then miraculously gets brought by God out there. It's a whole story he needs to tell. He'll tell it better than me. Planted 500 churches so far. Like that's, that's awesome. That is awesome. That is who we are. And, and I just, we, we need to grasp that once again. Like we need to recognize that we need God to send us once again. We're, we're in a, a dying world. We're in a, in a world that seems to be falling apart. There's spiritual decline. But I think there could be something. I just want to throw it out there as a possibility. And the reason I want to throw it out there is because we did it before. That we would be the place that, yes, we pray. Yes, we seek God. We would also be the place that we go and we reach. That we, that we stand up and we do something about it. That there would be people who are commissioned to this place, as Patrick was, as Kieran was. Or who would be commissioned from this place, like Columba, Columbanus. These, these enormous titans of church history. Maybe that's who we're called to be. Maybe it's possible that God would speak and we would hear and we would go. And I believe it because we've done it before. And I believe we could do it again. I'll bring up the band at this point. I want to share two quick stories with particular relevance. A lot of this took place in and around Northern Ireland, as you you probably heard from some of the stories there. Two key stories with particular relevance to us. So so later in his life, um, St. Patrick was praying. He had a vision of Ireland, and it was on fire. Uh, And there's an angel there, and says, this is what Ireland is like. And then the vision continued, and the fire dwindled, and it went, as he described it, from like to, to candlesticks, and then small lights, and then coals, and then ashes. And St. Patrick begins to weep. And he says, will God cast us off forever? And the angel said, look to the north, on the right-hand side, to the kingdom of Eulidia. Eulidia is everything east of the Ban in Ulster. And there was a small light there. And he said it struggled with the darkness for a long time. But it overcame and it lit up the island and restored the fire to its former glory. Now that's a pretty cool prophetic word right there. Let me give you another story. 1990, Paul Reed was in Kansas City. Uh, No one knew who he was. CFC was not known at that time. And a guy called John Paul Jackson called him out of the crowd and said, I have a picture of an island. Does that mean anything to you? Paul said, yeah. Um, he said, I, I see a light in the northeast corner. And it's almost extinguished, which was, by the way, true of CFC at the time. It went through a real challenge just prior to this period. But I think there's a bigger truth for our province. But he said, it's going to start burning brighter and brighter and brighter, and it's going to light up the whole island. For me, that's cessationism dead, everybody, by the way. Okay, just threw that out there. But we need to recognize that we, this is the time that we're living in. Like, I believe that. I, I believe, I, I find that remarkable that that is the word that has been given to us on this island, and in particular, this part of this island. Like, this is what we're meant to do. There, we understand, we, we don't want the light to dim. But nonetheless, God foreknew that. And yet he has put something here where we are called to be a light. There's, there's a struggle involved in this. I don't know how long that struggle will be. It could be centuries. 
but we're called to be the people of God here. Lay hold of him in prayer and go once again. We're called to do battle against the spirit of the age, to be a light in this place that shines for this island and then shines for the world. I believe that's who we're called to be. That's our, that's our heritage. That's our history.